We're in chapter 15 tonight. We covered two verses last time we were together, and um, we hope to finish chapter 15. No bets, please. One of the great missionaries of all times was the great missionary to Africa, David Livingston. He came from Scotland, and he virtually gave his entire life to go to the unreached peoples of the African continent and bring the gospel. When he died, they brought his body back to London and had a great funeral procession for him where he was buried at Westminster Abbey. In fact, I've stood in Westminster Abbey at the gravestone of that great missionary and read what he wrote to be put on his gravestone. It was very, very moving. The funeral procession was quite large. Throngs of people crowded the city of London as his body was brought into the abbey. One man who was in the crowd was weeping rather profusely. And somebody who was a bystander and noticed this man weeping said, Did you know the missionary? The man said, Did I know him? I grew up with him. We were boyhood friends. In fact, we both went to Africa together. But he said, I went to Africa for the gold of Africa. He went there for the souls of Africa. And he said, today I can't help but realizing that I have been wandering after the wrong world. I have been concentrating on the wrong world. He was after the temporary world, not the eternal world. I think those words could apply to Saul of Tarsus before he came Paul, became Paul the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus was out to build institutional Judaism and to keep Christians from growing at all, so much so that he would go to Damascus and arrest those who called upon the name of the Lord. And then he got converted. And boy, did he get converted, right? He got so converted, he got so turned around that this chief antagonist of the gospel became the ultimate protagonist for the faith and he preached the gospel in Damascus. Well, on the Damascus road, when he was flat on his back and God got his attention, he asked Jesus two questions. Question number one, who are you, Lord? Question number two, what do you want me to do? Have you asked those questions to God yet? First is the most important question, who is Jesus? Who are you, Lord? Who really is Jesus Christ in relation to who you are? That's, that's first and foremost that we know the Lord. Have you ever had somebody say to you, you know, I've been around you a long time, but I don't think I really know you. There's a lot of people who go to church every week and they hang around God for years, but they don't really know him. And Jesus said, many will come to me in that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. So we have to ask that question and settle that issue. Who are you, Lord, to me? Second question that Paul asks, what do you want me to do? There's a lot of Christians who spend years in the wilderness, wasted years because they never find out what the Lord wants them to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? What's your place for me, my involvement in this world, why am I on earth? Why did you save me? What, what's the purpose? What do you have? 
for me? Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, Paul asked that question. Saul of Tarsus asked that question. He got a good answer. The answer came from Ananias of Damascus, who was sent to Saul of Tarsus, and here was the answer. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. That is what he was called to be and to do. Well, Paul, being the radical that he was, did that immediately. You know, he's the kind of guy that hits the ground running. And so as soon as he finds out what Jesus wants him to do, the question is answered. He immediately, the scripture tells us, preaches in Damascus. And he preaches so hard in Damascus, they want to kill him. I mean, he is a fireball. You can't shut him up. And so he has to escape their threats and be let down out of the city over the wall in a garbage basket. And the church says, go away for a while. And it says the church has had peace when he left. I don't know that that's a good kind of peace to have when the evangelist leaves and everybody's happy. But Paul hit the ground running. You know, he sort of reminds me of a bottle of Coke. You've ever taken a bottle of Coke, you shake it up a lot, it's just got so much pressure, poof, has to come out. That was like Paul the Apostle. He loved to share. He loved to minister. In fact, he even writes about those who are addicted to the ministry. It's a great addiction to have if you're going to have one. I was reading about a group of prospectors who were stationed in Bannock, Montana, in the early days panning for gold. They were gold prospectors. They went out on a journey to find gold. They had a miserable time. Hardships were encountered along the way. Several members of the team died. Bandits robbed them. They, they had nothing left except a few old limp horses. So they decided, let's go back to Bannock. They were very discouraged. They camped by a stream. One guy was moving rocks around, picked up a rock and noticed something shiny on the bottom side of it. And he goes, hey, you guys. I don't know, but this, this might be gold. Well, they panned that day and got about $12 worth of gold. The next day, they panned $50 worth of gold, a big sum in those days. They went back to Bannock to regroup, get new supplies, and go out. But they, they made a vow that they wouldn't breathe a word of it to anybody. They wouldn't tell anybody. They just would meet on a certain day and in the morning early leave. On the morning they were to leave... Quietly, they sneaked out of the town and looked back, and there were about 300 people following them. <laughs> Who told them? Nobody. Nobody told them, but their faces betrayed their secret. Something was different, and people could tell these guys are happy. They're changed. They're up to something. And they figured it out. They're after gold, and they didn't want anybody to know. Well, the big difference between those prospectors and Paul is he wanted everybody to know. I think his face, in a sense, betrayed what he was all about, but he was happy to have that. In fact, he said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Now, all of that introduction to bring us to this section, this slice out of chapter 15, because last time we started looking at an insight into the ministry of Paul. And from... Verse 
14 all the way to the end of chapter, uh, uh, verse 14 of chapter 15 down to the end, which is verse 33, we see some of the marks of Paul's ministry that we seek to apply to ourselves. And, and we covered one point last time. Again, I said we covered two verses because there was something we really wanted to press in on and, and that was in verse uh, 14. But last time when we left off, we discovered that number one, Paul had a partnering ministry. That is, he wasn't a lone ranger. He had a team of people with him, and the church that he wrote to in Rome, he believed, were equipped to minister to one another. So, for the sake of context, verse 14, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Here's the essence of what he's saying. Paul has shared some very strong ideas, very strong, bold points in the book of Romans. A couple chapters all about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That, that would shake anybody up. And then as we move on in the book, he speaks about the war with the flesh that we all have, a very strong point he makes. The need to love one another is in the latter chapters. And so it, it is possible that some of the Romans actually thought, because Paul was bold and strong in his approach, well, maybe Paul thinks we're a bunch of wimps, that we're immature Christians that we don't love one another, that we really struggle with the flesh, that we're incapable. Maybe Paul's mad at us. So he's saying, I'm not mad at you. In fact, I believe in you and in your ministry. I'm a partner with you. You are able to admonish one another. When Paul wrote to the Philippian church, you may remember in the first few verses, he talked about our partnership together in the gospel our partnership together. He never saw himself as the man on stage, the superstar of early Christianity, Paul the Apostle. He simply saw himself as part of the team and every other believer that would come alongside of him, even those in the church, the rank and file Christian, were all part of the team of getting the gospel out. I like to see the role of a pastor, part of the role of the pastor, as, as being a divine talent scout. That is, looking around and finding people with not only the energy to get involved, but the giftedness to get involved, and finding where they fit. And then plugging where they fit with their gifts into the need. Say, oh great, you want to do that, and that's a drive you have, and it seems that you have a gift and a calling. Well, guess what? We have a need over here. Plug you right in. Go for it. That's part of the role. So that the ministry gets done by a large number of people. In the book of Nehemiah, there's a, there's a classic, to me, a classic text on, on how it's all supposed to work. It's in chapter 4, I believe. It says, so we built the wall and we finished the wall up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. The people built the wall, not just Nehemiah. And then in the following chapter, Nehemiah lists those people who were involved, the people who were building the walls. Listen to them. Goldsmiths, perfumers, leaders of the half-district of Jerusalem, the daughters of the leaders, 
These were people who weren't bricklayers by trade, but they were all working together on the common goal to build up the wall of Jerusalem. And I see that's how the church works. Partnership. All of us having a role, all of us plugging in to meet the need. Paul understood this. And I think Paul well understood because of the team that he brought with him wherever he went. That the best way to do ministry is to get things done through other people. It's called delegation. I've always loved Dwight L. Moody's quote. He said, I would rather put a thousand men to the work than for me to do the work of a thousand men. That's wisdom. Find people, engage them in the work, make them part of the same team, and let them do it. So it all gets done together. The church is sort of like an iceberg. Not that it's supposed to be cold and lifeless and uncaring. That's not what I mean by saying it's like an iceberg, but simply this. Most of the iceberg is unseen, right? Nine-tenths, I hear, of the iceberg is under the water. It forms the base and the stability. What you see, if you've ever seen one, is a small portion, about a tenth of it. And that's so much like at least this church. I think for every person on staff, there's probably, you know, 50 to 100 behind the scenes that you don't see who are doing ministry. There's always more who are invisible that are involved than those who are visible. Now, we kind of pressed in for the rest of the hour last week on that little section in verse 14 where it says, you are able also to admonish one another. I like that. The word admonish, nutitheo, to remind you, means to counsel. And remember how we talked about who can counsel in a church? Is it some elite class of professional, or is it the rank-and-file mature believer? It's the rank-and-file believer who has become mature. And that's sort of where we spent the, the, the last, well, almost the whole night, is the biblical counseling issue. You are able to admonish one another. You've got the goods to counsel, to instruct one another. That's what counseling is. It's simply the result of mature Christianity. People who are taught teach others, instruct others. You say, well, I can't do it. Well, yes, you can. You say, well, what tools do I have? Just to refresh your memory, you've got the Word of God, the best book ever on how to live, right? You've got that book. That's why we need to learn that book so we know how to apply those individual principles to individual lives. Besides that, you've got prayer. You say, well, what good does that do? You'd be surprised how many people think that. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, well, we've tried everything, there's nothing left to do, I guess all we can do is pray. It kind of shows you the place of prayer in their life. But prayer connects us with all of the resources of God. So we've got the Word of God and we've got prayer. We've got the Holy Spirit living inside each of us. That's a big plus because he is called in the New Testament the Counselor, the Counselor, or the Comforter. And besides having the Word of God and prayer and the Holy Spirit, you've got the body of Christ with all of the mix of gifts that make us all well-rounded. Now, I don't know any better toolbox than that, do you? For counseling a person on how to live. So Paul had a partnering ministry. That's where we left off. Second, Paul had a priestly ministry, verse 16. 
that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul had a priestly ministry. I say that because the word minister, ministry that he uses in this verse, is the term liturgas. Have you ever heard the word liturgy? A church says this is our liturgy of worship. It comes from the term liturgas, which means public service or public worship. It was a word originally used by a priest who would walk into a temple and make a sacrifice. That was his public worship, his liturgas. And that's the word that he uses. He's drawing an analogy from the Jewish temple worship. In fact, the term in our verse, ministering the gospel of God, is better rendered in the New International Version. I have a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Now here's the point. Paul saw himself in an, in an analogy like an officiating priest offering God the Gentiles that he brought to Christ. It's like, I led them to Christ. Here, Lord, they're yours. I'm just the priest getting them to know you, offering the Gentiles to you. Why is that significant? It's significant because if you know anything about Jewish worship, any Jewish person reading this would go, what? Because if you remember correctly, Gentiles were kept out of the temple. They had their own court, in fact the outer court. Couldn't get much closer than that outer court. There was a wall that was around that court. Uh, if you tried to go from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women or into the court of the men, there was a sign that said, death to any Gentile who crosses this line. And they meant it. So Gentiles were excluded from coming in close to God. And Paul here says, as a priest, they're the holy offering for God. That's beautiful. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For Christ himself has made peace between us Jews and you Gentiles by making us all one people. He has broken down the wall of hostility that was used to separate us. You know what he's referring to? It was that wall with the sign that said, Death to any Gentile past this line. Christ has removed these things so that we're all accessible to God. We can all go to God. So God doesn't love Jews more than he loves Gentiles. God doesn't love Baptists more than he does assemblies of God. God doesn't love um, non-denominationalists more than he loves denominationalists. Anybody who wants to can come close to God. It's the idea of inclusion. Man separates. God bridges the gap. And I love this. He had a priestly ministry, saving Gentiles and say, God, these Gentiles, these pagans, they're your holy offering. And he saw himself as a priest doing it. In Galatians 3, Paul said, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Next time, you have the privilege of leading another person to receive Jesus Christ. Think about it in terms of a priest. Here, Lord, I led them to you. They're yours as a holy offering. Now, 
Paul is speaking in metaphor when he talks about the temple and the priesthood and ministering as an officiating priest. Metaphorically, he sees himself as a priest. A priest was a go-between. There's God. There's the people. I, as the priest, will bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God, and I'll offer the sacrifices. That's, that's how it worked in the Old Testament. Paul is describing this part of his ministry in terms of evangelism only. Now, please listen carefully on this. As an evangelist, he was like a priest. He would connect God and people. He'd tell a person how to get saved, and they'd pray, they'd receive Christ, they'd get committed to Christ, and then he would offer them to God. Once they're converted, he's no longer their priest. He's no longer a priest in that regard. The new convert becomes the priest. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of belaboring this. It's an important point. The New Testament teaches what is called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Every believer is a priest, has access to God, and can lead others to God. And once that convert, once that person becomes a convert, that convert becomes a priest. That's why Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That simply means there is no special priesthood anymore in the New Testament. I remember growing up, my parents wanted one of us to become a priest. That was, that was the goal of any Catholic mother or father. You've got to be a priest. And so my first two brothers, they were the oldest ones, they were first on the list, and they went to seminary. And they wore the collar, and they wore the cassock, and they were studying for the priesthood. So they thought, this is it, they're going to be it. But though they got the education, they dropped out and didn't get ordained as priests. One wanted to be a biker, the other wanted to get married and have a profession, so it just didn't work out. Then they tried for the third, and third wasn't interested. He wanted to go to law school. And then their last hope. <laughs> I was their last hope to be a priest. Imagine their shock when I came to Christ, converted, and understood the scripture in Peter I, I read to you. And I came home and had that conversation. Well, you know, we wish that you were going to be a priest. I said, you got your wish. I am a priest in the New Testament sense. And every one of you here tonight is a priest. You all have access to God. And the only priestly function that we have is that of leading people to Christ and offering them to God. But all believers have access. So there's no more go-betweens, folks. You don't need a priest to talk to Mary, who will talk to a saint, who will talk to Jesus, who will talk to the Father, because the Father's too busy to hear you. That is nonsense. That defeats the whole purpose of the New Testament cross. The Bible teaches the priesthood of, of all believers. So that's why I, I always correct people when they say, oh, I know who you are, you're Skip. Uh, my, my mom goes to Mass every Sunday at, at Calvary. I go, oh, no, she doesn't. Because I'm, I'm a priest as much as she is, if she's a believer. The priesthood of all believers. 
Third, Paul had a powerful preaching ministry, verse 17 through 20. Paul had a powerful preaching ministry. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, Illyricum, excuse me, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Paul had a partnering ministry. Paul had a priestly ministry. Paul had a preaching ministry. Now he was figuratively a priest. He was literally a preacher. Boy, was he. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And he would go into synagogues, wouldn't he? And he'd open his mouth at the appropriate time when they were asking visitors to share something on their heart. He would share what was on his heart. And if they didn't want to hear it, and often they didn't, he'd go to the marketplace. And in places like Athens, when they'd say, Does anybody else have anything to share? He'd stand up. He was a preacher of the gospel. And he, he had a powerful ministry. Why was it so powerful? Well, it was powerful, first of all, because he was humble. He was humble. Notice what he says here. I have no reason to... Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. When he bragged, he bragged about God. He didn't brag about himself or his ministry or how many PhDs he had or what master's degree he had from the prominent theological seminary. How many people did this and that in his ministry? He only bragged about Christ, what God had done. Why? And why is that important to us? Because none of us can take credit for what God does through us. We can't. We can't do that. And, and, and some have said... Uh, well, it's amazing what you have done here in this town. I've had people say to me, it's amazing what you have accomplished in this town. And I kind of look around like, who are you talking to? Because I didn't accomplish anything. The other day, a staff member and I, one of the pastors, were riding up through the foothills and looking over the city. It was at night, actually, and uh, looking at all the lights. And I said, you know, when I first moved to town, I would come up here frequently and just look at all the lights, and I'd just pray for the city. God, have your will. Do your thing. Do what you want in this town. And he said, pretty amazing that one surfer kid later, all this has happened. I said, well, one surfer kid and, and lots of other team members who have done it with him. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what God has accomplished. You see, the reason we can't brag about anything is the same reason a hose can't brag about bringing water. It's a conduit. It's not the source. Or a scalpel can't brag because a doctor does a good deed in an operation. It's simply an instrument. There's a master behind the instrument. And so Paul, the great apostle, to me, Paul is the greatest Christian who ever lived on earth. The greatest Christian. And even he says, I can't brag about anything. You know why? Paul always remembered where he came from. He remembered when he persecuted the church. Wasted it, he said. In fact, you know how he described himself? 
I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the chiefest of sinners. Wow. Either he has really low self-esteem or he's just seeing it accurately. But God did the work. We have a tendency to elevate human instruments. All of us do. It's, it's, it's not a Christian tendency. It's a human nature tendency. We elevate people. I mean, look what we do to Christian musicians. We make them some amazing thing. I mean, we even have Dove Awards for them. Rather than just seeing them as bond slaves of Jesus Christ, part of the team, doing the work of the ministry, all the praise and glory goes to God. Pride is a danger. We have to be careful for it. I love what Jesus said. We do well to remember it. Without me, you can do nothing. Do we believe that? Do we really? Without me, you can do nothing. Not, without me, there's a lot of things you can do. Without me, you can do zero, nothing, nada, zip. But what did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. That's the balance of that. Without Christ, we can't do anything of lasting, eternal, permanent value. But, hey, Lord, what do you want me to do? Oh, I just want you to preach to Gentiles and all their kings and the children of Israel. Oh, is that all? Well, I can do all things then through Christ who gives me the strength. That's the balance. So, we all have a testimony. Just make sure your testimony doesn't turn into a bragamony. I've heard some testimonies. It's all about what they were and their this and their that. And we have to be careful. Paul uh, <laughs> opened this book. Remember what he said about himself? Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Not... Paul, the eminent theologian, doctor of Old Testament philosophy and theology, Ph.D., Th.D., D.D.M. <laughs> Paul, a slave, a common Roman slave whose whole idea is to serve his master and please his master. That's what I am to Christ. That's all I am. I'm a slave. So whether we're a pastor or an office worker or a musician or a mechanic, or a lay worker in the church, we're all servants. We're all slaves. Even Jesus Christ said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. There was an old guy that, that always liked to tell the story how he survived the, uh, the Jonestown flood. And, and he loved to tell it. He'd embellish it every time he'd tell it and have people he thought on the edge of their seats when he told the story. I survived the Jonestown flood. Well, this old guy died, went to heaven. And uh, in heaven that night, they were getting everybody together, sharing their life experiences. Well, when he found that out, he rushed up to Peter and said, Have I got a story for you on how I survived the Jonestown flood? I mean, you'll be amazed when I tell this story. I'll have everybody on the edge of their seats. Can I tell it tonight? Peter said, Yeah, you can tell it. But just remember, Noah's in the audience tonight. You know, there's always somebody who's got a better story. And Noah had it way over on him, on the, on the flood thing. And so rather than even boasting at all, Paul said, I brag in Jesus. Jesus is awesome. He's great. He's done a great work through me. So he was humble. What else made his ministry powerful is he had not only humility, he had integrity. Notice how he frames it. What Jesus Christ 
had accomplished through me in word and deed. Those two words, word and deed, speak of integrity. Word and deed. His life was consistent with his message. Greatest deterrent to the gospel preached is a life that doesn't live it. Hypocrisy ruins the testimony of the gospel. I got the gospel out in word and in deed. People heard it. People saw it in my life. You know the poem I've shared on many occasions. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say. People see what you do. What is the gospel according to you? Word and deed. What made him so powerful? Humility, integrity. Third, he was powerful because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He speaks about mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. He was Spirit-filled wherever he went. And by the way, no matter what you have to your credit, no matter what education you have or whatever great things you can do, without this qualification, you won't get far. A lot of people try to do the work of the ministry in the energy of the flesh rather than in the energy of the spirit. And it shows they burn out very quickly. It's on their own strength. Here is the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice he talks about signs and wonders. What was the purpose of the signs and wonders? I mean, Paul had a lot of them follow him, right? I mean, he would be out in places and he'd lay handkerchiefs, sweatbands, literally. Sweat handkerchiefs on people. They get healed from sweaty handkerchiefs. Incredible things happened. Healing, even blindness to some who were false prophets. The reason there were signs and wonders was to confirm the message of the gospel. To confirm, not, not to put on a fireworks display. Not so people would see something and go, ooh, that's cool. Could you do something else? Can we have another meeting tomorrow night and get a few more people? Could you do that again? It was simply to confirm the gospel message. Paul writes and he says, the signs of an apostle were worked or wrought in me. The signs of an apostle were wrought in me. What did he mean when he said the signs of an apostle were seen or wrought in me? He was referring back to Mark chapter 16, verse 20, when Jesus promised this. Well, here's the record. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through signs and wonders. They preached. The confirmation was the sign and the wonder. It confirmed their message. Now, I just want to go on record. I think most people know this, but I want to go on record tonight. I believe in signs and wonders. Not only do I have nothing against them, when they're authentic, I love them. I believe in them. I believe in the perpetuity of spiritual gifts. That's my theological bent. I believe that what God could do 2,000 years ago, he can still pull off today. Nothing's too hard for God, and God works in the church in proper context doing what he has always done. I believe in the ongoing ministry of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of them. I believe in signs and wonders when they're authentic. But I believe that signs and wonders should follow believers, as Jesus said. I'm disturbed when I see believers following signs and wonders. Oh, where's the next sign and wonder fest? 
Let's follow it around. Instead of preaching the message and letting the message be confirmed by the following signs, the accompanying signs and wonders. That's how it worked in the New Testament. You should also keep something in mind when you read this verse. Paul's whole life wasn't a miracle. He didn't wake up and claim his daily miracle. <laughs> Did he? Did he ever do that? Did he ever do that? Because there were times he was thrown in jail. There were times he, he was beaten. There were times he said, I was hungry, starving, naked, cold, homeless, shivering. That was his own testimony, his own words. It wasn't always a life of miracles. God did miracles to confirm the message, but he didn't have his daily fix of a sign and a wonder. He suffered immensely. In fact, he even said he was physically ill, some that say could never happen if you're filled with the Spirit. I've even heard people say, well, Paul was in sin or not filled with the Spirit. That's why he got sick. And uh, I, I have trouble with that. A fourth thing that made his ministry so powerful is that he was steadfast, verse 19, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What does he mean, fully preached the gospel? It could mean that he preached the whole counsel of God. Every truth that he knew, he sort of exhausted wherever he went. I think it's better to see it as he preached in a circuit. The word roundabout speaks of a round circle, a circuit. So from Jerusalem to Illyricum is a 1,400-mile span. And Paul said, I covered that span faithfully, proclaiming the gospel. He was steadfast. The reason I, I use that to describe him is he went there on foot. I don't know how far you've walked or ran or ridden a bicycle. You know, I've, I've tried to do some of those things on some pretty good distances, but 1,400 miles getting beat up along the way, and you still hang in there, and you go for it again. You know, when I travel by airplane, I get tired. Imagine traveling like Paul did. Now, Illyricum is um, it's on the Adriatic Sea. It's an old Roman province, squarely on the Adriatic border. It would be what we would call the Republic of Yugoslavia, old Yugoslavia. Now, here's the only problem with it. We have no record in the book of Acts of Paul ever going there. He says he was faithful, he was steadfast, he, he made this circuit, but we have no record of it. Doesn't mean he didn't go, because there is a two-year gap between Acts chapter 20 and 21, when he left Ephesus and was on his way to Jerusalem. There's two years unaccounted for, and it's very possible that during those two years, Paul got on the Ignatian Road, the Ignatian Way, and traveled from Thessalonica westward and would have ended up in Illyricum. That's a possibility. Some even conjecture that he not only went to Illyricum, but that he went all the way to Spain on that visit. We don't know. They have just thought that he did. Others believe he went all the way to Great Britain. Now, there, again, there's no proof of that. I mean, the Mormons say Jesus came to America, and they have no proof of that. We can't say for sure that Jesus, uh, uh, that uh, Paul the Apostle went over to uh, Illyricum, or uh, he did go to Illyricum, he said so, but that he went to Spain or Great Britain. These are just conjectures that would fit into that two-year gap. But he did make this complete circuit. He was steadfast. 
Is there an application for us? Yes. Whatever God has called you to do. It doesn't have to be preaching the gospel around the world. It could be children's ministry, jail ministry, personal discipleship, being a mother to your children. You're nurturing, you're discipling them. Be steadfast. There are times when you want to give up. It's hard. It's tough. I get involved. People don't appreciate it. But the idea is God has given me a task. I want to be faithful by his power to complete the task was the idea that Paul had here. So he had a partnering ministry. He had a priestly ministry offering new believers to Christ. He had a preaching ministry that was very powerful, and we gave you those four reasons. Fourth, he had a pioneering ministry, a pioneering ministry. Verse 20. So I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Paul saw his ministry as that of a trailblazer, a foundation layer. I'm going to lay the foundation. I'm going to go to unreached people groups where the gospel has never been preached. I'm going to go for it. He had a true Star Trek missionary heart to go where no man had gone before. That's what he wanted to do. He'd find out where things hadn't happened. Now, there was already a church in Rome. He's writing a letter. He didn't start the church. Somebody else started it. He's writing to them, but he never started it. And so he simply says, his idea is that I'm going to go, I hope to go to Spain, and I'll stop and see you on the way. I'll stop in Rome. But his whole heart was to go to those areas that had been unreached. Not that it's wrong to build on another man's foundation. In fact, we do often build on other men's, other ministries' foundations. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. That's how it worked. Paul was an evangelist. Apollos was a teacher. Paul would go and lay a foundation. Apollos would come and build upon the foundation that Paul laid. So you have the work of an evangelist, then you have the work of a teacher, a pastor, a pioneer comes, and then somebody builds on that. A couple of times since I have been here in Albuquerque, um, I was offered some opportunities to pastor some other churches in other parts of the United States where the pastor had left and it was a church that they wanted to go to a new level and get a a missions ministry, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, they called me and they offered me the position. And, and one of the things that kept me is building upon another man's foundation. I, I, I left California. I wanted to come where there wasn't a church like this, a Calvary Chapel, and, and just do a Bible study, see what God would do, and just sort of pioneer it. That was my heart. And now we have the opportunity to build upon that foundation and send others out to start new works, start new foundations, and even others to build upon their foundation. Just see the work of God go on. Verse 22, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. Interesting that he would say that. Now I no longer, having a place in these parts, have a great desire these many years to come to you. Talks about being hindered. When you hear those words, 
What do you think of automatically, just your gut level? Who hindered him? Satan. The devil hindered him. I don't think that's his idea when he says, I was hindered. I think Paul's perspective, from what I know of Paul's writings, is Paul so believed in the sovereignty of God that it was God's providential act that kept him out of places. When he says hindered, I think he's referring to the hindering work of God, not Satan. You know why? In Acts chapter 16, it says, When they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Here the Holy Spirit won't let them preach the gospel in a place. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them, or the Spirit hindered them. You know what? Even when Paul would get arrested and put in prison, he saw that as the overarching providential hand of God. He did. He's in in a Roman jail, and he writes to the Philippians. And they're all worried about him. Paul's in prison. This is going to stop the message. He goes, do you know, dear Philippians, that I'm here for the furtherance of the gospel? The furtherance of the gospel. He says, there's, there's the Roman guards who work for Caesar's household. The elite praetorian guards are now hearing the gospel because they're chained to me day and night. <laughs> they can't get away from me. I have a, literally a captive audience. And he saw that as part of the plan of God, putting him in prison, allowing him to go there to share the gospel with them. It's a good way to look at life. Again, there's a lot of scriptures we read and quote. I wonder how much we really believe them. Like Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those that love God. You know, that's a, that's a tough one to swallow, isn't it? And most of us live like, okay, well, most things work together for good, but not that one. All things, ooh, that's big, work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Joseph is a good example. Joseph is sold as a slave into Egypt. They had no idea it was part of the plan of God. He was mistreated. He was, he was uh, accused of something he didn't do. He was beaten. When his brothers came to him years later, he'd become second in command in Egypt. He had saved the world from a famine, giving advice to Pharaoh as he interpreted the dreams. And now he was going to be used as an agent to preserve the Jewish nation in a famine and keep them in Egypt so they could go into the promised land years later. And he looks at his brothers who were shaken in their boots. And he said, you know what? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. To save many a people alive as it is this day. I know it was in your heart. You were a bunch of creeps. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Even before Romans 8.28 was written, he believed it. All things work together. So Paul had a pioneering ministry, hindered from coming to one place by the providence of God. No longer having a place in these parts, having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. That's his heart. It's his desire. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. He wanted to go to Spain. And he, he announces that. By the grace of God, I'm going to Spain. See you on my trip. Hope we can hang out. That's basically what it says. Paraphrase. 
Historical and archaeological evidence indicates that Spain was not evangelized till the middle of the third century. So it's doubtful that he really did go to Spain. But he, he sure had a heart to do so, and we can understand why. He didn't want to build on another man's foundation and this huge open market, this whole huge area of Spain, the, the western furthest region of the Roman Empire. Ooh, if he could go there and unlock that door. He never, or at least we don't know if he made it to Spain, but he did make it to Rome. He said, I want to visit you in Rome. What's interesting to me is how he got there. When he was writing this epistle, he had no clue how he would get to Rome. He simply thought, see you guys going back to Jerusalem, going to deliver this offering to the church, I'm going to regroup, I'm going to go to Spain on another missionary journey, and I'll stop by and see you. Well, what really happened is he got to Jerusalem. In the temple in Jerusalem, an accusation was leveled against Paul that he had brought Trophimus and Ephesian into the Jewish court, which he didn't, but it was an accusation. He was arrested in the temple, first by the Jews. They were mobbing him. The Roman government stepped in, arrested Paul to protect, them, protect him from the Jews, brought him up on the steps of a pra the praetorium overlooking the temple. And Paul says, uh, hey, to the Roman guards, just let me address this crowd. I, I'll explain everything to them and we'll, we'll quiet everything. So he starts speaking in Hebrew to the Jews who are mad at him. And he says, uh, you know, gives his testimony. And then he finally says, uh, but God sent me from here since you have rejected the truth to go to the Gentiles. As soon as he said Gentiles, they went ballistic. And they were shouting, kill him, kill him. And the Roman guards didn't know what he said because he spoke in Hebrew, some texts, Aramaic, but it was a language they didn't understand. And so the Roman guard says, take this guy and beat him, find out what he said. So as they haul him away to give him a good beating, Paul pulls his Roman citizen, citizenship card out and says, do you guys know what you're doing? You can't beat an uncondemned Roman citizen. And the captain of the guard says, oh, you're a Roman citizen? I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul said, well, I can up one year on that. I'm freeborn. So they said, don't touch him. Paul stands trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. As he's before them, giving his testimony again at the trial, he perceives that half of the crowd is sad. You see, half the crowd is Pharisee. And so knowing that half believed in the resurrection and half didn't, they were secular, he says, I stand here today because I believe in the resurrection from the dead. And all the Pharisees said, yeah, amen, okay, we're into that. And the Sadducees said, well, we don't believe in that. And so they started arguing with each other. They didn't even look at Paul. They just started having this fight, and Paul kind of slipped out and was kept under Roman guard. And so the Jews saw that their plans had failed. Forty Jews took an oath to make sure they would, that they um, uh, would not eat or drink anything until they killed Paul. We make this solemn vow before God, we're going to kill somebody, but they did. <laughs> the nephew of Paul found out about it, told the Roman government. The Roman government took Paul by night with 200 others to guard him and conveyed him away from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He spent two years in jail in Caesarea. He stood before Felix, before Festus, Roman governors, and finally before King Agrippa. 
After the second go-around, trial after trial, the Jews came from Jerusalem and started accusing him of, of false accusations. And uh, finally, uh, the Roman governor says, Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial for these charges? And at this point, Paul was just tired. He was beat up. He thought, you know, I've been there, done that. I've been to Jerusalem already. These guys have false charges. I appeal my case to Caesar. That sealed his fate. It meant he was going to Rome. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal their case, which meant they would stand directly before Caesar in Rome and go through the Supreme Court case. He would try it. So Paul went to Rome as a prisoner of the Roman government, which meant it certainly would cut down on ministry costs. Nobody had to send him. No offerings had to be taken to get him to Rome. It was a free full expense paid trip by the Roman government to get him from Caesarea to Rome where he stood trial before Caesar, where he was able to write letters that still minister to us and help build up the church in Rome. But he had no clue when he wrote this what was coming down the pike. All he said, he said in the book of Acts, all I know is everywhere I go they keep telling me that chains and imprisonment await me. He said that to the Ephesians. Everywhere I go, people are saying chains and imprisonment await me, and I take that as being from the Holy Spirit. But then he said, ah, but none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which has been given to me by the Lord Jesus. How do you stop a guy like that? Every prophet says I'm going to get beat up in prison. I don't care, I'm going. How do you stop a guy like that? You don't. You just let him go. And he went and he saw it all as the, the hand of God. And maybe this is, since we're closing, a good place to close. We're ending in time. Providence. Do you know what that is? I want you to understand that tonight. And speaking of Paul, being hindered to go from one place to another to preach the gospel. Being in jail saying, this is for the furtherance of the gospel. This is the hand of God. The providence of God. This is what providence means. Providence is the overruling hand of God in ordinary events. The overruling hand of God in ordinary events. It's where God moves supernaturally, very naturally. Sort of behind the scenes, you might say. Providence is not the miraculous. So many people, I want a miracle a day. And they, they completely neglect the wonderful providential care of God. There's a difference between the miraculous and the providential. The miraculous, a miracle, is where God intervenes in natural law. Walking on the water, that's a miracle. That's not providence. It's a miracle because according to natural law, water cannot support an upright anthropod. A person can't try to stand on water unless it's displaced with some other object. It's impossible. So for Jesus to walk on the water and Peter to walk, that's miraculous. Resurrection from the dead, that's miraculous. Dead corpses, as far as we know, don't resuscitate naturally. So for Jesus to rise from the dead is miraculous. That is not providential. Providential is the ordinary stuff of life, the non-miraculous, arranged by a sovereign God arranged by a sovereign God. 
The word providence, by the way, comes from a Latin word, provideo. Provideo. Pra, pro, means before. Video, I see. It means to see something beforehand. The idea is that God sees everything before it happens and arranges things, moves things around. So you're walking down the street and God will move somebody in your path or a thing will happen. (gasps) Oh, why did that happen? And God's up there going, relax. It's all under control. It's my move. It's almost like he has a video of your life and he's cutting it and splicing it as it goes. He has the video, the pra-video in advance. He's editing your life. John Nelson Darby said, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes which he is behind. So God's behind, sort of like the shadows, arranging things. One time I was given for, I think it was Christmas, one of those remote control cars, battery operated, and I took it here to the church and I played with it. You know, at lunchtime I took it out and I remember I hid behind a tree and I was stationed out front and I just wait at lunchtime for people to come into the church. So as they come walking in, I have the little car just kind of dart out from the tree, chase them down the sidewalk and they, ah, they jump. And then they'd move and the car would move with them and almost like it had a mind of its own. They didn't know where I was. I was just behind the scenes directing the car. I have seen God do such things in my life providentially. It just so happened that one night I went to a potluck and met a girl named Lenya. And it just so happened that I knew a guy who said, hey, I'm moving to Albuquerque. And it just so happened I went with him and it just so happened that when we were at a crunch in our other building that somebody leveled a lawsuit against us to get more money out of where we were at. And it just so happened at the same time this building was available. And, we, and, and there's so many things like that. It wasn't miraculous. I didn't see words come up into heaven. Mary Lenya in the clouds. <laughs> Move to Albuquerque. It was just normal stuff arranged by a sovereign God. And to be able to look back and say, yeah, I was on the way this way, but I was hindered. And then to end up when you're hindered and say, it's all for the furtherance of the gospel. Maybe you have a raspy job. What if you could adopt the template, the grid of Paul the Apostle into your raspy job? And say tomorrow when you get there and look around, I'm here for the furtherance of the gospel. I mean, what could be worse than being in prison? If if Paul could say that in a Roman jail, I think we could say that at work or whatever situation we find ourselves in. Lord, I give this to you. Move providentially.